Let me ask you this morning, have you ever felt like in a time in your life where you thought God was mad at you? And you thought, man, I just feel like that, I feel like God's just not happy with me. Many people have thought of God as a vengeful deity. That's kind of the first thing that pops into their mind. And for a lot of people, this is the issue that creates for them the biggest obstacle of their faith. The most famous skeptic, Bertrand Russell, said in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, said the primary reason he did not believe in Jesus was because Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath of God. Russell called Christ's belief in the wrath of God the one profound defect in his character. I thought, huh, that's interesting. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, great Christian writer, said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. And he's referencing the, the wrath of God. To be honest with you, you know, we're in week five of this series. This is our last week, looking at the different ideas, the name above all names. And we've looked at God's love, we looked at his holiness, we looked at his actual name. And we would not be doing scripture justice if we did not look at all of God. And you cannot look at his goodness and his love without looking at his wrath. I would not be preaching the whole counsel of God as your pastor. But to be honest with you, this is probably one of the most difficult subjects for me to speak on as a pastor. Um, thinking through this idea of God and his wrath. It's a difficult doctrine, but at the same time, it is a good doctrine. And you're going to think, why, Pastor, why would you even say that? It's, it's essential to knowing the love and worshiping our God. A God without wrath is a God without goodness. So let's go to the passage that we've looked at each week um, as a part of this series, Exodus chapter 34. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So we're going to walk through several ideas of God's wrath this morning that I want us to kind of understand. And the first of all is that God's wrath, it does exist. It is very clear throughout Scripture that God's wrath does exist. The Bible speaks of it more than 600 times. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And as some of you think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. God, we talk about God's wrath in the Old Testament. You know, God, the God that we serve, he's nicer in the New Testament through Jesus. You know, God was kind of cranky in the Old Testament, but he changed his heart and comes back as God 2.0 in the form of Jesus, meek and mild. But that's not true at all. I showed you two weeks ago that the love of God is the predominant theme throughout the Old Testament and God's wrath is a repeated theme of Jesus' teaching throughout the New Testament. And in fact, it's one of Jesus' most frequent themes. Some of you guys are thinking, man, that's, I never thought about Jesus teaching on God's wrath. It says in John 3.36, Jesus here in the midst of a story, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains 
on him. And that's just one in many. And not only does Jesus talk about it, we see him demonstrate it. You know, toward the end of Jesus' life, he goes into the temple and chases out all of the money changers in the temple with a whip. The wrath of Jesus on those money changers. You know, I, don't, I grew up in, you know, children's church with a flannel graph. You, you guys remember what a flannel graph is? All right, a flannel graph was, yeah, some of the younger ones don't remember what a flannel graph is. A flannel graph was like this, is it, what, 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 help me out, like this felt piece of flannel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so you could take the flannel and you could like move the, the, the little character so you'd have Jesus a little flannel Jesus and his little disciples. And so you can like stick them on the flannel graph board and it's like a way of teaching before you had technology. It's like, you know, it's the best way, a best way of saying it. So I grew up with a flannel graph Jesus. You know, that's the way all of my kids' church teachers taught Jesus was through a flannel graph. And, you know, we would have, you know, these flannel graph images of Jesus, you know, holding a lamb, you know, stroking a lamb. Then you have another one with him holding you know, a little kid sitting in his lap. Then you'd have one of, you know, Jesus looking up into heaven. You know, you'd have that, that Jesus. Never did we have a flannel graph Jesus representing his wrath. Never did we have that. But Jesus' testimony to the wrath of God, it was central to his message and to his ministry. And for that matter, it wasn't talking about God's love that got him killed. It was his insistence upon his anger toward hypocrisy and injustice. So we see that God's wrath does exist. Second of all, we see that God's wrath is actually an expression of his goodness. That's crazy to think about. His wrath is actually an expression of his goodness. His goodness would not be complete without it. Whenever we sing that song on Sunday mornings, The Goodness of God, we're not thinking about the wrath of God in the back of our mind when we sing that song. God's wrath grows out of his love, his love for goodness and pureness and holiness through us. That's what he's thinking about. You know, as a dad, I love my kids. And I will not tolerate things that I see in my kids that I know that will harm them, such as dishonesty or cruelty or laziness. I get angry when I see those things in my kids. And I want to, my anger, I'm trying to funnel my anger to get them to change those attributes. I don't want to see those things in their life. And God is angry at sin. Why? Because he loves us, his creation. And he does not want to see it destroy his creation. In Genesis 1, God brought order out of chaos. The longer we live on this earth, we continue to see the world descend into greater chaos. That's what happens with sin. And because we have a God of love, he will not sit by and just watch it happen. God desires to bring us to a world free of sin and injustice and exploitation, racism and greed. He wants a world free of all of those things. So his anger is funneled whenever he sees those things destroying his creation. He wants to bring us to heaven. And heaven can only be heaven if there is no sin there. To think about heaven, a place described as no more tears, 
No more crying. Free of pain. Man, that's, our minds cannot even wrap around that thought of how truly great heaven will be. God's anger towards sin is born out of love for purity of his creation. So God's wrath is an expression of his goodness. Number two. Number three, God's wrath often consists in letting us experience the consequences of the choices that we make. And my wife liked to say with our kids, especially when they were little, we would tell them, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, don't climb up there. Don't touch that. And, you know, kids, you tell them not to plenty of times, what do they do? They end up doing and telling, and Rachel used to say, you know, that's those built-in consequences from God. <laughs> you know, God lets you experience those things that, uh, to, to give you that consequence. You know, this in this verse, is kind of a passive consequence. Where he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Sometimes people see that phrase and they think, well, that doesn't sound fair. It sounds like God is holding the parent or the kids accountable for what the parents did. But let me explain this to you. Scripture expressly denies that, from the, from even from like Ezekiel 18.20, where it says, the, shun, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what does this verse mean? Throw it back up there again, Evan. Where it says, to the third and fourth generation. It means that parents... The sin of parents have consequences that will affect their children. Let me illustrate it this way. I work for a bank. If I steal money from my bank and I get put into jail, will that have consequences upon my kids? <laughs> Absolutely. If you cheat on your husband or wife and leave him or her for someone else, will your kids suffer? Absolutely. If I cook meth in my house, will my kids not only be affected emotionally and physically? Yes, they will. If I choose to go to the beach or Disney or sports on Sunday instead of worshiping God with my, my family in church, will my kids be affected spiritually? Yes. And sometimes that is for generations that we feel that impact. God's judgment, you see, often consists of simply allowing us to experience the painful consequences of our choices. As simple as that. God says, you can experience those consequences of your bad choices. That is going to be my judgment upon you. In fact, the way Jesus describes hell, he shows it to be the fruition of our sin. We might miss it because the Jewish metaphors he uses can be unfamiliar to us sometimes, like the, the one, the worm that does not die is an image of the conscience continually being eaten, eaten away by guilt and regret. Or the phrase outer darkness is a reference to total absence from God and all of his goodness. We do not realize the impact that God and his presence of the Holy Spirit that currently we, we, we feel on this earth that's pushing back darkness constantly in our lives and the lives of those around us so that phrase outer darkness is the removal of god from all areas of our lives the gnashing of teeth is another way that hell is described it's this jewish image that's meant self-condemnation and self-loathing or the idea of fire it's the agony of god's displeasure 
Hell is simply the full fruition of telling God to get out of your life and allowing sin to go unchecked in your life. It's awful. It's terrible. Sin is like a cancer because it never stops growing. It continues to grow in your life. If your pettiness or jealousy or foul moods or dishonesty or tendencies to abuse others keeps growing in you for eternity, what would that be like? What would that be like if your life continued to be consumed and eaten up with all of your worst tendencies? It would be awful. That means God's mercy is now letting you taste some of the painful consequences of your sin to help you wake up from them now. We think when a husband or wife is caught in the middle of an affair, we think, oh, that's just God's judgment. I would say that's actually God's mercy on their life that they were caught. You see, God's wrath is when that person gets away with it. When your heart is not right, the absolute worst thing that God can do for you is to give you exactly what you want. Because our hearts will always choose sin. Let me ask you, do you see that in your life? Is waking, where is, you know, is your heart waking up to the destructive consequences of your life? You know, there's a, uh, a big thing a few years ago where the, uh, all of the names on that famous uh, site, Ashley Madison, where you could, you know, have an, a, supposedly a quiet affair, all of those names were put out into the public. And people would say, oh, those people are facing the, the consequences of their choices. But yeah, they are. And that was just God's mercy on their life. So they could then hopefully get help from their sin to repent of that sin and turn back to God. It would be God's judgment to allow them to continue on in that sin. We see God's wrath often consists in letting us experience the consequences of the choices we make. Number four, God chose to let his love overcome his wrath. Now there's a contrast set up in God's presentation of his name. We looked at, let's look at it here. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now this, a lot of what the, the time the, the Hebrews would do is they would take these and they would put them in poems to help them remember the verses. And so, you know, this parallel structure here is the, the, where the last phrase compares to the first. On one end, you have God's justice, which is to, it says to the third and fourth generations. And then you have on the front end, you have God's mercy, which is, it says, to love for the thousands. And it should actually, they, they kind of stop there. It should be to the thousands of generations. The translator doesn't quite get there. You know, God's mercy is exponentially greater than his wrath, is what Moses is telling us here, God is telling us through Moses in this writing here. It goes back to this phrase, slow to anger, that we looked at earlier. Slow to anger. And the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, which that's what Jesus would have used to read the Old Testament, the Aramaic language, it translates it this way. The one who makes anger distance and brings compassion near. Slow to anger. The one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. God felt two rightful emotions toward us in our sin. He felt wrath and he felt compassion. 
He felt wrath and compassion. He sovereignly and inexplicably chose to bring one close, his love, and to push his wrath farther away. God was fully justified when he felt wrath for our sin. He would have been fully justified to say, get out of my sight forever. I want nothing to do with you. My creation who turned your back on me through sin. But he chose to push away that wrath and to bring compassion near. It was his free choice. And it's one of the greatest mysteries of the universe. One that Peter says, even the angels are confused by. The angels do not understand God's compassion for us. They look at it and say, it just doesn't add up. One of the most remarkable passages of Scripture in the whole Bible, it says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, of God, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know, when my kids lie, my loving anger at their sin makes me want to see them purified of it. <laughs> You know, as a dad, you have different ways of, you know, wanting to cure that sin out of your, your kid's life. You know, there's the old joke, if you lie, I'm going to wash your mouth out with, with soap. And that's one of the ways that, you know, parents have used. They've used other ways to, to cure them of that sin. But here's where that breaks down. Even when my kids lie, they're still my kids, aren't they? I still love them as my kids. This passage in Romans so it, it, this idea of sinners, or it could also be translated as enemies, the passage in Romans says that our sin and our rebellion made us God's enemies. Paul uses that language of enemies all throughout the book of Romans. So when we sin against God, we are God's enemies. God choosing to push anger away and bring compassion near is not even on the same planet of me wanting to cure my kids of lying or of, of being dishonest. It would be, here's a better illustration. It would be me wanting to adopt into my family and welcome into my home a member of ISIS who maybe killed one of my family members. You might say, but Pastor Robert, we're not that bad. Our sin before a holy God is infinitely more times worse. But you think, Pastor, what about all of the good works that I've done? Let me illustrate it this way. That's on the same, the best way I could think about it would be two ISIS soldiers in a camp, one having nothing to eat and the other shares his lunch after they've just killed a whole community. That's the best way that I can think about it. It's, you know, is sharing a lunch a genuinely good act? But it's hard for us to call that good because their whole mission is evil. Our whole lives are spent in rebellion against God, living for our own glory instead of his, living as our only authority and rejecting his. Our rebellion killed Jesus, and that shrouds even our good deeds in a cloak of evil. 
There is no greater wonder in all of the universe than God's compassion toward us. When you start thinking about it in those terms, and you think about the terms of the evil of this world, that's why the angels are confused. That's why the angels do not get it of how God, understanding the wrath of God, how he could push away his wrath and pull us close in compassion. That's why I think about the old hymn that I used to sing as a kid. So I simply stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So we see God chose to let his love overcome his wrath. We see we can escape God's wrath only through Christ. I pointed out last week um, that there's a contradiction that that was set here in this verse. It says in verse 7, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving in iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God forgive sin and at the same time not let the guilty go unpunished. It seems like a a contradiction in that passage. How can that happen? If he will by no means clear the guilty, then who is he forgiving? Who is he forgiving? You know, Moses, at this point in Exodus, he would not have seen this. He would have not understood this. The resolution to this contradiction is Christ. We can see that now. It is Christ. Christ would stand as the substitute. Because of that, he now stands as our advocate. You know, I used to think, you can't hold him guilty. God can't require two punishments for the same sin. A lot of times we want to minimize God's wrath because that makes us feel safe. But we can't. We can't. You see, God has placed that as a part of our conscience. We try to deny the reality of God's judgment But we can't convince even our own hearts of that because we know there's a coming judgment. Coming to Jesus takes that subconscious, unsettled feeling of judgment and makes it conscious. We embrace that we are condemned, but then we tell, but then Jesus tells us to rest because he has taken our judgment upon himself. I love this quote from Tim Keller, it says, we are more guilty than we ever imagined, more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. The voice of condemnation whispers, you are finished. But Jesus trumps out with a shout of, it is finished. I paid your debt. Judgment, God's wrath was upon me. When Jesus stood on the cross, was hung on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him for all of eternity. As bad as the physical pain was of having nails driven into your hands and to your feet would have been, it was nothing compared to experiencing the wrath 
of God for our sin. God's wrath he took upon himself. Number six, God's wrath comes slowly but surely. And the Hebrew phrase, slow to anger, it's literally the way it's translated. I find this funny. Long of nostrils. <laughs> Long of nostrils. How does that mean slow to anger, you ask? Yeah, the Hebrew is such colorful in its language sometimes. So what happens when you get angry? Your nostrils flare, don't they? They flare up. If you're quick-tempered, your flaring nostrils get going right away. They get going. You get to flaring those nostrils. But if you're slow to anger, you close your mouth and you breathe. And your nostrils come down. The phrase means this. You can make God mad, but you really have to work at it. And he is slow to anger because he wants you to repent. He wants you to wake up. The Apostle Peter says throughout human history, mankind has mistaken God's slowness to anger as his absence. When you think about the Noah in Genesis, it took a hundred years of Noah preaching to repent. Repent to all of the people. And he built the ark for a hundred years before the flood came. A hundred years God held back his wrath upon the people. Most people in those days interpreted that long space as God failing to act. Peter said that long space was giving people time to repent. Even now, Peter says, people assume the delay of the coming of Christ and judgment means that he's not coming back, but he is. Don't use what God intends to be space to repent for his absence. He's giving us time to repent. Even now, you may see God is doing things to wake you up. Doing things in your life. Maybe it's through sickness or family struggle or work struggle. God is putting those things in your life to pull you back to him, to give you time to repent. You know, God did that to Pharaoh with the plagues. Each one got worse. The water turned to blood. The animals died. They got a disease trying to wake them up to who the true God is. Who is the true God in your life? Who gets preeminence in your life? How is God trying to wake you up? I see this happening every day in our world. You just flip on the news and you see all of the travesty, all of the wickedness that's taking place in our world of how mankind is distorting and dementing all of the goodness of God's creation. And God is telling us to wake up. My return is near. So I ask you this morning, for those of you who have not made the decision to follow Christ, will you repent? God does not want you to perish. No one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God. We were not designed for it. Hell and God's wrath was designed for Satan and his demons, not you. But you have to choose to receive his goodness. You have to choose to receive his act of forgiveness through Jesus Christ upon the cross and say that I'm a sinner, 
Christ died for my sin. I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and become one of his followers. One of the most unusual Supreme Court cases to ever come before the court was in 1833, United States versus Wilson. George Wilson, who had pled guilty for grand theft and assault, in June of 1830, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to Wilson. But Wilson, for reasons undisclosed and unknown, he refused the president's pardon. The Supreme Court ruled a pardon must be received to be valid. It is an act of grace that cannot be forced. If unreceived, it is not valid. Some of you have heard the message of Jesus and his death upon a cross for you week after week, month after month, year after year, but you have not received the gift of salvation. No one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God does. I ask you, will you receive God's free gift of salvation, a pardon from his wrath. The gospel is only good news for those who accept it. If there's anyone here today that says, Pastor, I have never made the decision to trust Christ. I love for today to be that day for you. Let's pray.